Folks, you're listening to Night Fright. I'm your host, Brent Holland. Tonight we've got three terrific guests. We're doing a roundtable on the JFK assassination. We've got Alan Dale from Washington, D.C., actually just outside Washington, and Bill Simpich is from, uh, I was going to say Nova Scotia, isn't that funny, San Francisco, and Larry Hancock has just joined us all the way from Oklahoma. And I want to welcome all three of you to the show. We're having a great discussion tonight, folks. We're going to be looking at the CIA's involvement in the JFK assassination. Larry, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Oh, you bet. Happy to be here. That's terrific. Say hello to Bill and say hello to Alan. <laughs> Bill, Alan, hello. Good I to love meeting you. you in places like this. <laughs> yeah. I, I thought I told you never to call me here. <laughs> I think the only thing that's missing tonight is beer, guys. I'm in Kingston, Ontario, by the way, folks. Isn't this amazing? With Skype, what a technology. It brings people from all around the world together. And... Um, to discuss the Kennedy assassination. I guess we have JFK to thank for that as well. And I, I mean that sincerely, not uh, as a pun or sarcastically. Okay, let's get into it. I'm going to ask Larry some questions. Larry, how involved was the CIA, in your opinion, with the assassination of JFK? Could you ask that one just a little louder? My volume seems to be lower than it should be. How involved was the CIA in the assassination of JFK. Still didn't get it. I'm sorry. I uh, hear the question. I don't hear the name. <laughs> the CIA with the assassination of JFK. You, you still with us, Larry? Well, I think we may have lost Larry. Okay, so let's let's continue along with uh, Alan and uh, Bill Simpich. Uh, www.nightfrightshow.com, folks. There you will find all the guests' information, and uh, you can order their books online. And Bill Simpich's book, as mentioned before, is a free download at the Mary Farrell website. Larry, are you back with us? I think Larry is trying to adjust his headset. Again. Are you still with us? I'm still here. Oh, good. Okay. Now, you've written a book called Shadow Warfare. How involved, in your opinion, was the CIA with the JFK assassination? I definitely think that CIA, CIA officers were involved operationally with the people who went to Dallas. Um, and these CIA officers would be people who were already operationally involved with Cuban exiles and other associated people in an ongoing program to assassinate Fidel Castro. So I think the involvement of CIA personnel is no longer a question. Uh, the question is how high up the chain of the command did the process really start within the CIA? In your opinion, was there a single entity or a single person that organized and planned the hit on President Kennedy? I don't think there was a single person. There Probably you could consider a single person as the organizer, the driving, who brought the people together and essentially put them in a position to conduct the mission. Uh, and if, if anything, that person would be David Morales. Uh, that would be my suspicion. And I suspect that he was assisted by some of his own 
field officers at JM Wave who, who were already working with him. So I, I think there was, tactically speaking, and let's put it in those terms, uh, from a tactical perspective in terms of organizing the attack, picking the right people, and getting the people started off towards Dallas, I think there was a single individual. Bill Simpich, can you tell the folks what JM Wave was? Well, JM Wave was the CIA's forward operating base uh, for the Cuban uh, destabilization campaign. That's the way I would put it. It wasn't yet a state of war, but it was virtually a state of war. And how does all this work with Operation Mongoose? In the movie JFK, we see David Ferry's character played by... Um, Joe Pesci. Uh, thank you, my friend. Uh, claim that t- to tell Garrison to go check out something called Operation Mongoose. Um, Bill, could you tell us what Operation Mongoose was? Well, it was Ed Lansdale at the helm. Uh, for, and Larry's probably a little better at this than I am. But he, Lansdale was doing it from the military side. And Harvey was kind of his underling, which Harvey hated, incidentally. Because he was doing it from the intelligence side, or the CIA side, I should say. The military has done intelligence. And they were trying to put together a, a campaign that would get the, the uh, uh, Cuba back into American hands with, you know, during the first term of the Kennedy administration. They had a pretty tight timeline. And uh, Lansdale wasn't able to meet it. Lansdale and Harvey weren't getting along. And... Uh, uh, not only Harvey, but the entire uh, campaign went into the dumper after the Cuban Missile Crisis. Is that a fair summation, Larry? Did I leave some parts out? Larry, did you were you able to hear Bill? No, I, 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 that's again the volume's a little low. If someone could get closer to the mic, it would help. I hear some talking, but I can't pick out the words. Okay. Would you have a set of headphones hanging around, Larry? Maybe that would uh, They do, but they actually cut down the volume. Oh, man. So um, that's a problem. Bill, I think what you left out is Bobby Kennedy and Mongoose. Well, Bobby was in the middle of it, and so were several other people in the uh, administration from on the national security side, but uh, Lindsdale and uh, Harvey were the kings. Absolutely, but but surely, um, you know, in terms of enmity or or uh, people who didn't get along with each other, I think that's really the point of contact where Bobby taking it upon himself to maybe um, spearhead the attempts to get rid of Fidel, maybe brought him into very close proximity with some of these ultimate figures that we're very interested in, including Bill Harvey, who I think had a rather low opinion of the Attorney General. Would you say that's fair? Well, the mistake Jack Kennedy made was not appointing Bobby head of the CIA, Right. frankly, when you look Mm -hmm. back on it, because uh, he may not have been able to control the CIA, but uh, he would have had a fatter shot. As it was, he infuriated so many officers CIA by uh, uh, getting in the middle of operations, calling people up from the Attorney General's desk. At one point, Bill Harvey saw him pick up a cable inside the CIA HQ, and he literally ripped it out of Bobby's hand. That's yeah. the kind of relationship they had. Mm-hmm. Wow, I thought the relationship between uh, President Johnson and Bobby was bad. That sounds, this was far, far more No, he called, he called the Kennedys fags, 
that's a direct quote. And oh, my for God. That, for that F or, you know, that kind of right. thing. Right, right. So it is a real Really strong language. Okay. But, you know, it wasn't limited to the guys at the very top. I mean, uh, Jeff Morley has done some some very important uh, interviews with some of the people that were still alive until very recently, including a guy named uh, Sam Halpern. Halpern. Yeah, Hal- Halpern is the guy who made the Seven Days in May quote. A lot of people that, you know, are kind of under the radar, not part of, uh, you know, a superficial historical uh, examination of the era, but people who were up to their eyeballs as nuts and bolts members of the covert uh, operations and CIA operations, especially directed against Fidel Castro. And you find that when you listen to these people speak, really kind of an astonishing level of hostility, even 30 or 40 years later, directed towards JFK and Robert Kennedy. Larry, could you tell us who Ed Lansdale was? Lansdale has a very interesting background. Lansdale was actually, despite what we've just been saying, Lansdale was a favorite of John Kennedy. Lansdale was an Air Force officer, actually ended up being an Air Force general, who was detailed to the CIA for various operations in Southeast Asia. throughout the late 50s and early 60s. And Lansdale became essentially a local regional expert on Vietnam and was involved in covert operations early on in Vietnam. As a matter of fact, Lansdale headed the first CIA station in fact by Saigon. And And wanted to be the uh, America's ambassador to Vietnam. He wanted to be America's ambassador to Vietnam, and actually Kennedy probably would have supported that. Kennedy was impressed by Lansdale's remarks in meetings about Vietnam and actually proposed him after Mondu for a high-level position in Vietnam. He floated him as chief of the CIA station. He also floated him for a diplomatic position, as you said, but Lansdale was in the difficult position of having been a detailee to the CIA, meant that he wasn't really CIA, so the CIA didn't trust him. That meant that the State Department didn't trust him. You know, he's one of those guys in between, so he's not anybody's guy, and they all oppose Kennedy's support of him. Right. It's rather interesting to find that a lot lot of people suspect Lansdale of involvement in the JFK assassination when he was probably one of the few military officers around who was really Well, I think we can thank Fletcher Prouty and uh, Oliver Stone for really kind of, you know, promoting that uh, Lansdale as a sinister architect of all this stuff, you know, unfortunately. Larry, I'm going to ask you, uh, could you email me a telephone number where I can call you back because your Skype connection is very, very weak. Oh, okay. I, I managed to improve it on my end. You're sounding good now. But, uh, yeah, let me, well, I can, I can email that to you just a second. Sure. Just take your time. Folks, we're speaking with three great JFK researchers tonight. And, uh, one of them is Alan Dale, of course. Fans of the show will know he's been on the show a few weeks ago. We were talking about something that he coins as the deep end of the pool. And uh, he's in Washington, D.C. We're also speaking with another great researcher who's in San Francisco tonight. And uh, 
He's got a terrific book out called State Secret, and his name is Bill Simpich. Now, let me tell you about State Secret. State Secret is a free download, and the link for that will be on the www.nightfrightshow.com website. And you can get that at the maryferrell.org website, www.maryferrell.org website. Uh, the other great researcher, of course, fans of this show will know he's a regular on the show, Larry Hancock, all the way from Oklahoma. And um, we're looking at all the different aspects of the CIA's involvement with the JFK assassination. Something else I want to tell you about, of course, is the upcoming conference that's called the Warren Commission and the JFK Assassination 50 Years. And that's taking place on September 26th to 28th, 2014. And that's going to be at the Bethesda Hyatt Regency Hotel. The people putting that on are aarclibrary.org. Once again, the link will be right on the www.nightfrightshow website. Once you're on the aarclibrary.org website, you'll be able to order tickets. You'll be able to reserve your hotel. Uh, there's a full complimentary uh, list of guests that are going to be there and some real heavy hitters. All our guests tonight will be there. Uh, Cyril Wett will be there. Um, I'm trying to think of some other folks. Peter Dale Scott, another real heavy hitter. Uh, Malcolm Blunt. Uh, all these amazing, amazing deep end of the pool researchers will be there. And uh, Jim DiEugenio, fans of the show will know uh, he's been on the show. Uh, Gail Nix was just on the show as well. Um, Dr. John Newman. Thank you very much, my friend, Dr. John Newman. Now, there's a key name, folks. He's worth the price of admission alone. And um, and then you'd get to speak with Bill Simbich, of course, in person. You'd also get to speak with Alan. Alan is willing to sign uh, anything you want for 20 bucks. And um, Larry Hancock's going to be there as well, and you'll be able to speak with him. And so it's going to be one heck of a conference. I would urge you all to go. And here's Larry's phone number. I'm just going to try and get him back right away. Well, you know what we'll do? I'll, we're coming up to break, so I'll do it. I'll do it during the break, folks. Let's go back to Bill Simpich. Bill, do you think military intelligence was combining with the CIA, the names we had mentioned before, in the cover-up? I, well, I do, and I think where you see it the most strongly is in the Bethesda Naval Hospital when they were counting the bullets and, the wound, and looking at the wounds of the president. Uh, there's simply no way that I will ever believe that uh, there was not a big, enormous exit wound in the back of his head, and that would mean that he was shot in the front. And given the fact that Mr. Oswald, uh, if, if he was there at all, the sixth-floor window was uh, behind the president, that would mean it would have been impossible for Oswald to have shot the president you got a second shooter. Uh, you've got a crossfire. What do you think, uh, Alan? I, I'm, first, I want to say that the, the, <laughs> the facetious claim of yours that I'm a researcher whose name should be mentioned in the same breath with either Larry Hancock or Bill Simpich is having funny. Some fun, folks. It's funny to me, but it is grossly misleading. <laughs> I just want to 
make sure that we're clear that uh, in no way, shape, or form should I be considered a researcher. I'm a student of uh, historical events of consequence, and these these two extraordinary um, historians, historical researchers, uh, and activists in this story uh, are, you know, are teachers, and I'm a student. Don't listen to Alan. Alan knows his stuff. He no may kidding. not have researched this stuff for as many years as me and Larry, but he knows his case backwards. Mm-hmm. I appreciate your optimism, Bill. Uh, it, it, with regard to your question, uh, uh, there, uh, I, there's a couple of things. You know, we're, we're kind of scattershot all over the place a little bit. Uh, you, want, you want me to get that? Hello? If you're ordering a pizza. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Larry. Are you there, my friend? I'm here. Okay. Oh, much better. Much better. That's much better, isn't it? Okay. Uh, the thing that I would like to just sort of say to try to maybe get us a little bit on one track is that there are separate areas of research. There are separate puzzles with this story. And I don't think any one of the three of us would claim that we think that there is one ultimate answer where you can name a specific individual and say, okay, this explains everything, because everything with regard to this story doesn't start at 12.30 p.m. on November 22nd, 1963. Everything has to do with, for instance, the four years prior to that moment where elements of uh, the CIA were engaged in some kind of awareness of the activities associated with Lee Oswald. And so so just in terms of the intelligence-related materials that have been um, (laughs) described... Uh oh. Uh oh, you know what that is. That's my little cue for it. We're going to take a six minute, very quick break. Larry, Bill, Alan, stay with us for six minutes. We'll be back in six minutes, folks. When we come back, we're going to be looking at the JFK assassination as we have been all night, but going even deeper. We've got a great roundtable going with three terrific JFK researchers, and um, their names are Alan Dale from Washington, D.C. Fans of the show will know he was on several weeks ago. We were looking at the deep end of the pool, JFK, and the deep politics of the machinations that were behind the assassination. Bill Simpich is on line as well with us. Bill Simpich is a researcher from San Francisco. He has an amazing book out, folks, and it's free, and it's called State Secret. Easy way to get it is through the www.nightfrightshow.com website, and uh, there'll be a link there for Mary Farrell's website. Mary Farrell is a research organization, maryfarrell.org. Click on that, and that'll take you right to a spot where you can download his book free. The other wonderful legend, and he's been on the show many, many times, is Larry Hancock is joining us, and he has a rash of books out there. One of the first books I ever bought to get into the JFK assassination. Larry, I just realized now I know who to blame for all this. It's you. (laughs) Suddenly I feel very guilty. (laughs) One of the most amazing books ever written on the assassination. Someone would have talked. And I bought that Geez, years ago, uh, before I was even, as I said, into the assassination. And uh, you just lured me right in with your great writing and great research. He has a new book out called Shadow Warfare, an easy way to find 
Larry's shows with us. He's been on the show many, many times, www.nightfrightshow.com. Also joining us online, but maybe muted, is William Blackwell. And William Blackwell, of course, is in Nevada. William, do you want to join us, and uh, or do you want to stay muted? Well, I, I, uh, hi, Brent. Uh, thanks for bringing me in. I, I, I apologize. I had a, a business uh, uh uh, luncheon today and got back late and uh, Angela uh, was uh, wise enough uh, and on the ball to remind me that uh, you were on. So uh, I'll I'll stay muted and 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 listen and, and maybe come in. I, I feel like I'm in the minor leagues here and I'm I'm waiting to be called up into the big leagues. So <laughs> anyway, anyway. How are you doing today? Very well. Thank you very much, and thanks for joining us. And I should mention to the other uh, researchers, Bill represents uh, David Lifton. Uh, he's his attorney. And I hope well, that's okay to say on air, Bill. I, I, well, you just said it, so. <laughs> no, it's not. See what happens. Yeah. Okay. Was it a 20-second delay? Maybe I can go back and take it. Yeah. In. But uh, I wanted, uh, but you have the Mr. Simpich on, and I wanted to, I wanted to at least say to him that I, I read his book, uh, uh, oh, about six weeks ago or so, I, I had missed uh, the interview uh, that you had that night, and uh, I went online and read it, and and was thoroughly blown away, and 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 learned a lot of stuff that I that I didn't know. So I wanted to give him kudos that I enjoyed that book very very much. Well, thank you so much. When a fellow attorney uh, likes your work, that's actually one of the highest praises I can get. Because <laughs> attorneys are a tough audience. <laughs> yes, we are. Anyway, uh, uh, Brent, I'll just mute and listen, and uh, if I have something to chime in, I'll chime in. Please do, Bill, anytime. You're more than welcome. Brent, would you allow me to just make, uh, sure, please do. Just make a reference to another book written by Larry Hancock, which I think is very relevant to what we're addressing this evening, and that's his book, Nexus, yep. uh, which I think should also be required reading for anyone interested in uh, something other than a superficial assessment of the context of the assassination. What was going on around the time of the two years, ten months, and two days that uh, were the administration of the 35th President of the United States. Let me ask uh, Larry this. Larry, what was JFK threatening that he had to be assassinated? Well, I think there are two levels of threat. The, the most, the threat that drove the people that, that incited it and carried it out literally out of their minds was his opening of back-channel dialogue with Fidel Castro and his his stated objective of working towards a neutral Cuba, uh, a, a settlement to get the Russians out, and essentially bringing Castro back from the communist camp. And as you can imagine, the thought of a neutral Cuba, the lifting the American embargo, and essentially settling the whole situation in place was enough to, to drive the Cuban exiles out of their minds because that essentially meant that they would not be going home ever. Byron, do you feel that they were part and parcel, the Cuban exiles, the anti-Castro Cuban exiles? Were they part oh, and parcel? I, I think we have considerable source material that, that says they were. Actually, several of them talk about what I just mentioned, talk about having been told by their CIA advisors of the, of the Kennedy-Castro dialogue and just being emotionally blown out of the water by that news. Uh, so we, we actually have statements from, from the exile community to that effect. Um, Can you that, give us an example of one? 
How about uh, John Martino and what he said? John Martino is one, but they're they're actually uh, Felipe Vidal Santiago is another. These are all Cuban exiles who were in Miami and working in or around the anti-Castro movement. Uh, many of them assets of the CIA. Others simply going the same direction against Castro, but. Felipe Vidal would be one of one of the uh, the best sources of actually quoting that he had been given that news and that late that summer he was busily spreading it around the community, telling them how much at risk they were going to be by the Kennedy Castro dialogues. Bill Simpich, we've got anti-Castro Cubans, CIA assets. We've got Johnny Roselli, Sam Giancana, a bunch of mafioso also working part and parcel with the CIA, and, of course, the CIA themselves. Now, John McCone was the head of the CIA when Kennedy was assassinated November 22, 1963. He was handpicked by Kennedy. Do you think John McCone knew anything at all about the, assass- I, the upcoming assassination? I think Larry and I, I won't speak for Larry, but I, my recollection is we talked about McCone quite a bit, and we both agree that not only was he unaware, but that he was the, one of the fellows who uh, was told on Sunday morning that there were two shooters. <laughs> if you can believe it. Wow. Uh, he learned about it after the fact. I guess that would be it. Uh, Bill and I both, I, I think we agree that McCone, Johnson, Bundy, were in a meeting on Sunday where they were actually briefed to the effect that there had been multiple shooters and hence some sort of a conspiracy. But as far as advanced knowledge, no. no. Okay, let me ask this, and whoever wants to field it can field it. If they were aware of the multiple shooters in Dealey Plaza to assassinate the president, why the hell did they stay silent and why didn't they come forward and investigate? <laughs> Go ahead, Alan. <laughs> oh, no, I'm not going to touch that. We'd be here for nine hours. There's just no well, way. Well, <laughs> I'll start, and Larry can You'll finish. Uh, okay. Yeah. I, 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 by the afternoon, you hear uh, who I believe is either uh, George Bundy or someone a lot like him from the Situation Room saying there's Wait, George only George Bundy one was Secretary of State? No, or, no, uh, he was a National Security, security Advisor. Okay, sorry. Yeah. And uh bottom line was that uh, some, either Bundy or someone a lot like him announced to the president's party, and therefore to the world, if you will, that there was only one shooter. And this is at a time where the DA in Dallas is saying there's more than one shooter. <laughs> because that's, <laughs> cause that's what common sense would tell you. But the, the story came down from on high, and, it, and, it's, and the White House... Uh, was part of it, uh, and I'm not saying it was Kennedy's people per se, but I think Kennedy's people realized that in order to uh, avoid uh, chaos in the government ranks, that there was going to have to be uh, a play to the effect of there's only one shooter and we've got him and it's over. And I don't think that everybody in the Kennedy administration was sanguine with that, but that's the way it went down. And maybe Larry wants to address it. Larry, yeah, I think, did I think Bobby Stephanie, know? Do you think Bobby back a, a bit, I, I not only agree with that, but, but put yourself in the position. It's not like the people that I just named. It's not 
that the senior national security people knew what had happened. They didn't have the answer. They were simply faced with information indicating that, A, there had been a conspiracy, and, B, as, as Bill outlines in his book, there were indications that that conspiracy might well have involved CIA officers. Now, do you really want to go there? Because this is at the very peak of the Cold War. The CIA is essentially the front line defending the country in international geopolitics. Do you really want to create the kind of chaos that Bill was just talking about, or do you simply say, in the interest of national security, it's far better that we make this a simple story and we literally don't investigate it? because we don't want to find out what might be there. It could be dangerous to the country. Do you feel that perhaps there was a fear that there was a Soviet-slash-Cuban mole that may have set up the assassination, and they were afraid that, indeed, if they found the mole, that it would lead back to either Cuba or the Soviet Union, and then they would have to respond? So better off just to shut the door and forget it? Well, the indications are within the first couple of weeks, they were satisfied that it was not a Soviet mole, if anybody believed that on the first day. Uh, I personally agree with Larry. Uh, I think they knew on day one that the chances was high that it was an inside job, and they had to put a kibosh to it. If for no other reason, then, you know, it would be the height of foolishness for the Soviets to have done something like that. Larry, do you feel Bobby Kennedy knew? And if so, why didn't he pursue? I certainly think Bobby suspected that there was conspiracy. I mean, we have all sorts of evidence after the fact that Bobby suspected there was conspiracy. But you got to remember that Bobby was a senior member of the administration. He was a very patriotic individual. Uh, and a lot of these people, whether we like it or not, were putting their view of national security and the country first. And it's easy for us to sit back here at this period of time and, and be all hardcore about it. you need to tell the truth irrespective of anything else. Like Garrison said, all the heavens may fall. But when you're actually in those positions in the White House and in the Capitol, things aren't that easy. Alan, do you feel that the Cuban Missile Crisis only a year before Part of that residue played a, a part in the cover-up as well, because they were fearing uh -huh. another nuclear ex ex escalation or perhaps even a war. Well, I don't know who we're referring to when we say they, but there's a lot Government. that you know we're we're not going into, which includes the fact that the first you know the first day we're getting reports that this accused assassin, while he's still alive is a pro-Castro activist, which suggests in and of itself, you know, there are various places in Miami and New Orleans where DRE and other organizations, which are anti-Castro organizations, are promoting the idea that this guy was an agent. I mean, as loudly and as crudely as they possibly could, they're waving their arms saying, this guy was an agent of Castro. Our beloved president has been assassinated by an agent of Castro. So there are all kinds of international ramifications in terms of the immediate aftermath of the reality of the shooting, the ascendancy to the presidency by Lyndon Johnson. Uh, there's also the story that I believe is something that we have a better understanding of now than we used to about Robert Kennedy 
basically sending an emissary uh, with Jacqueline Kennedy's approval to the Soviet Union saying, by the way, we don't think the Soviets had anything to do with this. There's also the whole story about FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover and Lyndon Johnson discussing on the morning of the 23rd this problem in Mexico City and the possibility that uh, the Oswald figure met met with a guy named Valery Kostikov, who was thought by some people within the mechanisms of uh, Cold War intelligence within the corridors, the interior of the CIA, some of them certainly thought that Kostikov was the chief of assassinations in the Western Hemisphere for the KGB. So mm-hmm. another strand beneath the surface that's a hidden sort of uh, story, something that is, uh, you know, really probably very uh, relevant in terms of if we assume that Lyndon Johnson had nothing to do with planning President Kennedy's assassination, all of these things would be of concern to people like Lyndon Johnson, to Robert McNamara, to Dean Rusk. There are lots of considerations that are legit apart from whatever suspicions Robert Kennedy may have had about one of your guys did it in the form of somebody engaged in shenanigans pertaining to anti-Castro-Cuban operations. I don't know if that answered your question, but the thing about the the Cuban Missile Crisis certainly is relevant because I think, as I said before, I think the Cuban Missile Crisis is the defining moment which signed John Kennedy's death warrant because it wasn't the end of the story. It, it really is the beginning of the story of his last year in the presidency where he install, negotiated and installed a telephone where he picks up the telephone in the Oval Office and Nikita Khrushchev answers in, in the Kremlin. That's a big deal that had never happened before. He negotiates and signs limited nuclear test ban treaty for atmospheric testing, which his executives in the Pentagon were adamantly, adamantly, adamantly opposed to. Uh, they thought this was the greatest appeasement of, of communists, uh, um, you know, giving an advantage to the Soviets in the history of the Cold War. And they thought it was a treasonous act, I think. I don't think that's overstating it. And he gave the great speech, uh, probably the most famous speech, but not the only only example of his rhetoric matching his idealism at uh American University on June 10th of 1963, where the first thing he does is he advises, he encourages the um, the students of that university to re- reevaluate what they think they know about the people of the Soviet Union and all of their many great achievements and contributions in art and science, in history, and the fact that they sacrificed 20 million citizens in World War II fighting against Nazi Germany. Um, so there was a lot going on that I think, uh, you know, if you want to bookmark the last uh, 13 months of his life, uh, that re- peaceful resolution to the Cuban Missile Crisis, I think, is the point at which that part of the story begins. Bill well, Sinkich, just, just to follow up on that, quickly, ahead, it, to focus it down, though, one of the things we have to remember about the weekend following the assassination First of all, if you look at all the presidents that we've ever had, Johnson stands out as a pure control freak. That was the man's nature. That's, I don't think that's stating Johnson demanded absolute control, especially absolute control of the media. Secondly, every president, every administration always emphasizes control as the first response to any crisis. You can't control events if you're out of control of information. So just by the nature of the beast, 
that weekend, the whole process would have been to start closing the funnel. And, mm-hmm. and we, we can't ignore those broad things because that, that happens in every national crisis. The first thing that the president and his administration does is start to bring it under control. Regardless of what happened, you can't control it unless you start closing the funnel. Closing the funnel is a perfect expression to describe the Katzenbach memo where, you know, I think it was directed towards um, uh, Bill Moyers. Was it not uh, advocating that we shut down any kind of consideration of there being anybody involved other than Lee Oswald, that that early on the uh, the official policy is going to be, you know, we're, cl- we're closing doors, we're not opening them? Absolutely, and that is just SOP. You know, after having right. after having looked at all the administrations in both covert warfare and now in surprise attacks, it just it repeats itself over and over again. So you have to take it as a given. Mm-hmm. But I think Johnson, as you said, was particularly paranoid, particularly uncomfortable um, emotionally, psychologically, with anybody having something on him, with anybody talking behind his back, with anybody not praising him. He seemed particularly sensitive or arguably even, you know, emotionally needy, maybe even worse than that in terms of uh, his expectation about the loyalty and the trust of the people around him. Bill Simpich, there was a lot of information emanating out of Mexico City that seemed to point a finger either at the Soviets or the Cubans. Was there any validity to any of, the, to any of that propaganda? Oh, I think we lost you, Bill. Barely. Hear me now? Yep, that's better. Okay. Uh, I think most of us who look at it hard would agree that Dave Phillips, who was the Cuban uh, chief and also was the covert ops chief uh, for uh, that part of the world, uh, uh, was almost certainly the fellow who spread the disinformation stories about uh Cuban involvement uh, and Oswald's links to the Cubans. Uh, These links didn't exist. Almost every one of these could be traced right back to Phillips without a lot of effort. It's covered in in several articles that are easily found on the Internet. Uh, So that's where I would go with that. Uh, I think the most telling thing about uh, Mexico City, which I'd like to touch on before we break, Sure. Uh, for the day is that uh, is the impersonation of Oswald on the telephone, which uh, is kind of the center of my book, and uh, which a lot of people like Larry have written about over the years. Uh, I, I am convinced that at a minimum uh, he was uh, impersonated on the phone twice: once on the 28th of September, and once on the 1st of October, and. Uh, reason for the impersonation we don't know uh, part of my book is uh, offering a possible scenario about what that might have been but we do know that Hoover reported it to LBJ on the 23rd of November and uh, the tape for that is missing at this point but the transcript still exists but the actual tape is missing so noise, no voice recognition can, can take place no, no, the tape was literally erased. The LBJ library tested it and came back and said, 
in essence, somebody tampering with it. Fellas, <laughs> I think that's that's important to get. Sure, the tape is there, but uh, but actually, the researcher who did the work on it got to the point where the LBJ Library had to admit that mm-hmm. that dialogue was erased off the tape. This that was is, our friend Rex Bradford. That's Rex doing right. that, and that's this is. This is as important as the Nixon tape erasure, and probably more important than the Nixon tape erasure, because someone, and this has never been examined by anybody, someone took a presidential tape and literally erased it. That's other than Nixon, that's just unheard of. There's got to be something deeply important there. Fellas, can I can I share with you something that I'm I'm anxious to share with uh, with both Bill and Larry because it just came to me today, uh, not not as a eureka moment because I don't <laughs> I seem not to have any of those, but I did receive an email. I received an email from our good friend, our esteemed colleague, <laughs> Malcolm <laughs> and, Blunt, and fellow and, researcher. Yes, yes, my fellow researcher, Malcolm Blunt. And Malcolm Blunt, when I saw I saw Malcolm, Jeff Morley, and I went to visit Malcolm recently in D.C. We recorded uh, an hour with him. I recorded an additional hour of supplemental conversation. Uh, relevant to what we had touched upon the day before, so I uh, did two hours with Malcolm recently, and off off mic he told me that he had he was hopeful that he was going to acquire four and a half hours on tape of Gaten Fonzi speaking with a guy named Mitch Werbel. And Mitch Werbel III, Mitch Werbel III, for people who may not be familiar with that name, was a true character of, of significance, uh, person of very short stature. Uh, he was a, a munitions and arms manufacturer and designer. He was part of what's called, what's referred to loosely as the Old Boy Network. He goes back to the OSS. Uh, he supplied weapons to, we think, the CIA. He certainly was a weapons manufacturer and designer with a specialty. And his specialty were are what are called suppressors. And, and so there's a, a hard-to-find documentary about him called The uh, Wizard of Whispering Death. The Wizard <laughs> of Whispering Death, Mitch, Mitch Werbel III. He ran a place in Powder Springs, Georgia, which was basically a paramilitary training camp where these, you know, guys who wanted to be soldiers of fortune could pay him blow stuff up up and stab dummies. That's where you'd want to go. Blackwater uh, before Blackwater. That's exactly right. And, and you know, there's a little bit of documentation about this guy because he had an ego the size of, you know, New Jersey. But he was somebody who was intimately connected with things that were relevant to people who wanted to supply arms for counterinsurgencies around the world in Southeast Asia and Africa. You know, machine guns that... that didn't produce as much sound and fired more quickly than than anything that had preceded them. All kinds of that kind of stuff. Fascinating character. Not he was a little to the right of Edward Teller in terms of his politics. Um, here's what I want to share with you. This is this is the email that I received from Malcolm earlier today. Alan have now had a chance to listen to the Mitch Werbel four and a half hour interview with Gaten Fonzi. Five CDs. Can you guess? A big fat zero. 
Huh. Sounds like sounds like white noise all over them. I asked Marie Fonzi if it was possible that Gaten would it would not have checked to see if the recorder was working okay. She said that Gaten would have checked for sure, especially as it was Werbel. Plus, I'm sure I have the tape log of the conversation content, which means the tapes were likely fiddled with. Sort of fits a pattern I have I have had to deal with for the last 20 years, a.k.a. the sealed box at Georgetown. Uh, that's the Ausler collection of um, Marine uh, testimony, people who served with Lee Oswald. All of that stuff is missing. Um, uh, missing customs and INS testimony and interviews from the church committee. There's a long list. Ah, well, back to the grindstone, best Malcolm. So that thing about missing materials, about something that's been intentionally erased, it is still one of the central obstructions in this ongoing investigation. And that, that's interesting because Fonzie wrote at great length about that interview in his book and sure quotes Warbell extensively. And knowing Gaten, I doubt that he would have he would have quoted him specifically unless he had something listen to that gave him quotable material. Exactly right. Bill? Uh, uh, a similar tangent, uh, if you will, uh, I ran into the same thing today. There's uh, another permutation of Oswald's name uh, known as Harvey Lee Oswald, which you see all through the file in many di different circumstances. And I've kind of made it a hobby like Peter Dale Scott to always run these to earth because uh, there was a history. In fact, uh, the State Department had what was they called the Harvey Lee Oswald case. And I spent, you know, a good portion of my afternoon, and I'm a busy guy. <laughs> I was, I was, you know, I've got a law practice, I've got a family, I've got a lot of things going, and I spent a lot of time doing this. And so I, I just, I begrudged the time. And I went through all the documents about the Harvey Lee Oswald case, and every, in every single instance, the single attachment that referred to the Harvey Lee Oswald case was missing. Imagine that. Yeah. It's just typical. I mean, there's steady file skipping going on. And that's why what Rex did was so smart and so valuable. Let's literally just take a million documents, one-fifth of everything at the archive, just put them on the Internet. Mm -hmm. That's brilliant. Absolutely. And that's at the maryfarrow.org. Website, That's by the right. way, folks, in the link, www.nightfrightshow.com. Larry, what kind of roadblocks have you run into in things missing that shouldn't be? <laughs> I've had several, several anecdotes of the same sort. I think one of the, the most <laughs> frustrating was at one point in time, uh, Malcolm Blunt, who we just talked about, Alan mentioned, sent me a document. It was a document from uh, someone who was on the HSCA staff, and the HSCA a staff member had received correspondence from an individual who who provided actually a lot of information, documents, so on and so forth. To make a long story short, he said that he had been good friends with and worked with two um, CIA employees who had chatted at length about having trained and worked with the Cuban exiles who were involved in the assassination. Uh, so it's I discuss it in the book, and someone would have talked at some length. But I, you know, it's the sort of thing. If you're if you're a staff member of the House Select Committee on Assassinations, this has got to be the biggest day of your life, right? This guy sent me up, 
sent me letters. He sent me documents. I talked to him on the phone multiple times. And, uh, you know, eventually this lady ended up leaving the commission before it was, was over. But eventually we ended up tracking her down and actually contacted her and said, oh, well, you know, tell us more about this. What happened with this guy? And her response was, you know, I don't remember that at all. And we went, oh, okay. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> how do you, how do you yeah. handle that as a researcher when they tell um, you? You get your parachute out and you bail. You might, there's I, An equivalent incident was where I had been investigating the report, and this was a doc, well-documented report of an NSA intercept. And the intercept had actually recorded a call relating to a lead on the assassination. Someone had been talking about the assassination in advance. And an Air Force services operator who was doing the intercept work for the NSA, anyway, the whole point is I ended up talking to this fellow. I got him on the phone eventually. His wife brought him to the phone. I said, well, you know, I, you wrote these letters. We have copies of it. You know, this is all documented, so it's no longer surprised it was released as a document we got it and i'd like to talk to you about it and he said you know i've had four memory operations since then i work at walmart and i just don't remember anything oh about my, my past gosh. Oh my and gosh. i went okay where's the parachute again you don't you can't you, you know you know it's there and you know they're not going to talk to you about it uh, Larry, can I ask you a quick question that you may know the answer to? I've learned about this lady uh, who was an investigator for the House Select Committee named Betsy Wolf. Do we know if Betsy Wolf is still around? No, do not. Okay, Bill? Do not, but I, I don't. doesn't ring a bell. Paul Hoke was not a big fan of hers, as I recall. You might ask Paul. Okay. He, he, was, he did not like her work very much, as I recall. One person I wanted to bring up was Ann Goodpasture. Bill, could you take us through who Ann Well, she, yeah, I learned recently that she passed away about three years ago, which made me sad because I always, wanted, I always had one more question I wanted to ask her. But people always had one more question they wanted to ask her, and she kept answering it. And it was always more fascinating. The reason I say that was that she was the right-hand person to uh, the head of the Mexico City uh, CIA station, a man named Wynne Scott. And Ann Goodpasture, basically, uh, she worked both the photo side of things as well as the wiretap side of things. And she was good buddies with Angleton and Harvey. And yet, at the same time, I kind of like thinking about good pasture is that she got left in a sense holding the bag in this case the reason i say that is because she wound up almost dictating the letter that eventually was sent out from mexico city station after oswald the oswald character at least had come and gone from mexico city and she uh uh wrote a description of oswald that was wildly at odds with uh the real man, but not only that, uh, she literally made up the date uh, that he arrived at, and we believe that the reason she did that was to create a legend within the agency about uh, what was going on. In other words, I believe, and it's in my book, Billy, I don't want to get into it 
much further here. Uh, she was telling a legend of some kind. It's quite clear. I believe that she was working on a mole hunt with the likes of Jim Angleton to try to smoke out whoever had impersonated Oswald. And the reason I say that is because two letters came back in response to the letter she dictated, and both of them had completely different descriptions of Oswald. One of them was the one she offered, which was six feet tall and 35, and the other one was the five foot ten, 165 Oswald that we had last seen in uh, the Soviet Union, and who we later see uh, described by the dispatcher uh, the day Kennedy's killed. So I think the whole, I think this, uh, the people at Good Pastor, frankly, were blackmailed at the end of the day with all this paper trail about Lee Oswald coming back to bite him in the butt on November 22nd. What in the world were they going to say about all these different descriptions of Oswald and being impersonated on the phone, possibly, and making this trip down there and uh, all the rest of it? What in the world were they going to say about this man? given this wild set of circumstances. It was essentially blackmail on the CIA and the FBI, which meant they couldn't investigate. And uh, the people who did it got away with it. Unbelievable. Bill, I want to ask you also about the Tippett assassination. Uh, well, again, the fellow who was the dispatcher who called out the 5'10-165 description five times uh, in the moments before Tippett died, was a good buddy of Tippett's. Uh, nobody saw Oswald as 5'10", 165. One fellow named uh, Howard Brennan tried to claim he did, but uh, the evidence is very strong that that was made up after the fact, that description by him. Uh, and uh, so what I believe happened was that I believe that Tippett literally was on a mission to find Oswald. And I say that because Tippett's own father said this to uh, a researcher, Joe McBride, who was on this case for many years. And uh, when, when McBride learned from Tippett's father that Tippett was looking for Oswald, he just about fell out of his chair. Nobody had ever heard that before. Mm-hmm. And Mrs. Tippett has made a long history of not talking to the press. And after you hear that story out of Tippett's father, you can see the reason why. The Tippett witnesses have gone through the kind of pressure that you and I can't possibly imagine. Uh, and the reason why is because I believe Tippett, at a minimum, was supposed to bring in Oswald. And I think that uh, whether Tippett knew it or not, Oswald wasn't supposed to live much past uh, being found uh, by Mr. Tippett. And uh, whoever, whatever happened next is up for grabs. But what we do know is that Tippett was left lying on the street dead. And uh, there was a wallet found at the scene. And the wallet uh, was uh, found by uh, an officer there named Westbrook. And Westbrook shouted that the contents to an FBI officer and told him, I, thought, I see identity here for a man named Oswald, and I see identity here for a man named Tippett. No, Heidel. Heidel. Heidel, thank you. Excuse me. Mm-hmm. Uh, Oswald and Heidel were both uh, named by this officer. And then uh, they run off a few minutes later to the theater, capture Oswald. All these reports are written about Oswald's uh, capture, but uh, nothing is mentioned in these uh, uh, reports about there being a Oswald, uh, being a, uh, having a Hidel card in Oswald's wallet. 
or anything like that. Uh, but it, yet it, uh, and the wallet that, that is on the scene at the tip of the scene is never reported for 35 years until one of the FBI guys in a moment of foolhardiness blurted it out. So how could the Oswald wallet not be reported for 35 years? And I'll tell you right now, I believe it was the throwdown wallet just like I believe a lot of the evidence in this case was thrown down. And that's a bit of a longer conversation. But if you wanted to point the finger at uh, Oswald, that was a great way to do it. And at the same token, why in the world was it hidden? Why was it covered up? Larry, I want to ask you, when you... I'd like to add just one thing to what Bill said, and I think this is kind of interesting because... It's a dead giveaway. First of all, he talked about the description that was given to the dispatcher. Well, anybody that's familiar with these sorts of things will say that when you get a description from the witness, generally the first thing they mention is clothing. Right. There's no description of clothing at all, which tells you that the person, this was a planted description, and whoever planted it probably didn't even couldn't be certain what Oswald would be wearing today. The only reason you'd leave that out is that you don't know what he might be wearing. So you have to leave it out. And I think it's one little detail like that, it gets down to that throwdown evidence that Bill was talking about. They had to deal with the fact that they had to incriminate Oswald with Oswald not being a direct player and directly involved in this. So there, there was a bit of a handicap. One of the things that one of the reasons why things don't fall together as neatly as you might expect them to is it wasn't an easy task to frame this guy. You had to do it in bits and pieces. It might also be worth um, sort of just just to supplement a, just a tiny little bit. If you're looking to ensure that a guy is going to be killed, then painting him as a cop killer it could hardly be a more effective strategy. Because remember that Oswald was arrested initially for murdering Officer Tippett. It wasn't until hours later that uh, he was charged with uh, with murdering the president. But but if there was a plan to implicate Oswald in such a way that he wasn't going to survive the day, I can hardly think of a more effective mechanism than to put out an all-points bulletin that we're looking for this guy, and now he's a cop killer, which usually means gun him down on sight. <laughs> in Texas. In yeah. Texas, yeah. Larry, what other things were put in place to incriminate Oswald? Well, I personally think the rifle was put in place to incriminate Oswald. I know there may be disagreement about that, but one of the one of the points of contention that I've made is in its most simple form, it, it, given that you can't control Oswald, I mean, people often ask, well, what if Oswald got a cold that day and stayed home from work? Well, if Oswald's rifle is found at the scene of the crime, and a rifle traceable to Oswald, and he is, but if it's traceable to Oswald, you can absolutely guarantee that at a minimum, Lee Oswald is going to be charged with conspiracy to kill the president, you know. If he's at home sick in bed with pneumonia, they're going to jerk him out and say, okay, kid, who'd you give the rifle to? So at the heart of the planted evidence, to me, is the rifle and and most likely the holes. Uh, 
because that's truly all you needed. Uh, Lee Oswald could have been virtually anywhere. Lee Oswald could have been downstairs. Lee Oswald could have been seen, but it's his rifle. So he's going to be part of it, and as soon as you bring him in, you brought in Fidel Castro, you brought in all of the connections that had been being set up for the previous four or five months. And you got to ask yourself, of course, what assassin would, would use a mail-ordered rifle as his murder weapon, much less leave it? It's his exit strategy that's always puzzled me. He gets on a, a, a bus, for God's sake. As his, as his big getaway. <laughs> gives away his cap to another person, right? <laughs> but, you, but you've got to say that as far as evidence goes. And actually, in this fashion, it's it's very much the same thing as the, the King assassination. If you can take a weapon at the scene of the crime and tie it to somebody, it's done. I, I mean, I think the lawyers in the audience will will say that that's, you probably got it made from there on. Because what else... What else may happen, the, ju- the jury's going to be going, okay, it was his gun, had to be involved. Mm-hmm. That's really no getting around it. You've got a conspiracy count at least. And Larry put it perfectly about mm-hmm. it doesn't matter where Oswald is. Do you think, we know, Val, that he spent the night before the assassination uncharacteristically with his wife and his family at Ruth Payne's house where Marina Oswald and their kids were staying uh, the R.B. Oswald folks was staying in a rooming house, and he would go usually on the weekends. This was a Thursday night, so it was out of the norm for him to stay with his wife. He left his wedding ring on the dresser and some money. Do you think it was his intention that he was leaving the country? It's a great question. It's one of the great questions of this case, and I think people on all sides of it wrestle with this one. Uh, I personally think that he knew he knew things were hot. Okay. Uh, but I, I don't think it was an assassination he was worried about. I think he was worried about some other kind of provocation. I don't know what it was. Uh, but I, I, it just, uh, I, I put it this way. When I was a believer in uh, a low nut theory with Oswald at the center of it, that was my crowning piece of evidence. But uh, like many of the other things in this case, I think it's more useful to look at the whole case and look at that as a marker. Something's up when you take your wedding ring off. There's no question about it. Something's up when you leave money there for the wife. And it's so, a wacky so, in those days, too, and he wasn't making a wacky though. No, no. So he got, he, I would agree that something's up, but that's a long uh, start from saying he knew he was going to go out and kill the president or be conspirator insane. Larry Hancock, your uh, perspective? I'm kind of torn by that, and and I really don't think I know. I've always tended to very much agree with Bill's view that something was up, and Oswald was going to take a change in direction that day. Mm -hmm. But on the counterpoint, Oswald was having difficulties with her. Oswald was trying to get her to move back in with him. Oswald was very attached to the children. You know, Oswald wanted a family arrangement. It, is it possible for us to say at this point in time that he was just not throwing down the, the gambit to Marina and saying, look, you know, I've asked you 35 times, and you're going to have to make up your mind. Are you going to live with this other lady forever, or are you going to do something? The ring may have indicated that. Leaving the money, he was 
there's every indication he was devoted to his family, and especially those little girls. And his little girl was only uh, one month old. Alan, what's your perspective on that? Uh, I have hardly anything worthy of, you know, saying out loud, except that if we, you know, we're always looking at various points, uh, various places, various intersecting moments that might connect to something way over there. It's like a pastiche or a, uh, a quilt. And if one of these, one of the relevant, um, points is uh, the claim made by a man, uh, the leader of anti-Castro paramilitary group called Alpha 66, Antonio Vesiana, claiming mm-hmm. that he saw his, um, what I guess may have been the equivalent of a case officer in the form of a man he, he knew as Maurice Bishop, which, whom he later ultimately identified, to be sure, he later did indeed identify David Atley Phillips as Maurice Bishop after lots of hemming and hawing that took a long time. But that's where it is, you know, ultimately he identified David Phillips as being the person in whose company he saw Lee Oswald prior to the assassination. So one of the things that I've discussed with, among other people, our friend Stuart Wexler, who has co-authored some of the great books by uh, Larry Hancock, including The Awful Grace of God about Dr. Martin Luther King's assassination. Um, By the way, folks, I just posted his show, Stuart Wexler's show, this very day. And uh, you can certainly get that online at www.nightbreakshow.com. Stuart and I both discussed the probability that if we feel that we have reason to be confident that Antonio Vesiana did not make a mistake and did not misidentify and did not make up this improbable encounter where he sees his his guy uh, in the company of the man who will be charged with the as being the sole assassin of the president of the United States. We think that uh, that such an encounter like that could not possibly have happened accidentally because David Phillips was a professional and he would have been more careful than to have two appointments bump up against each other in an awkward way. Uh, so maybe part of the point of that would have been to indicate this is entirely conjecture and as such it's probably of no value. But it is a remote possibility that maybe there was a plan and it could have been an authorized plan. It may have had nothing whatsoever to do with assassinating a popular sitting president. Uh, there could have been a plan where David Phillips was engaged in trying to get, uh, in trying to establish as part of the documentary history of Lee Oswald that he was trying to get into Cuba, because if he's in Cuba, he can conceivably play the same role that maybe he played in Dallas, which is that of a low-level disposable asset. Mm-hmm. And in the event that David Phillips and others were engaged in an ongoing effort, possibly in opposition to President Kennedy's objectives, but at the time of the assassination, could possibly Lamar Waldron, I know has a lot to say about this, could conceivably have been a part, a low-level disposable asset in Cuba at the time of maybe an attack on Fidel, where having someone uh, with that description, somebody like uh, Oswald, may have been something of value. Maybe that's something that was an objective, in which case, for all we know, Lee Oswald thought maybe he was going to end up in Cuba that day. We've only got a few minutes left, and I want to get this final question in. And you mentioned Lamar, and Alan, there's a couple of times during the show you you, uh, took the words right out of my mouth, so to speak. We know now that the anti-Castro Cubans, CIA, uh, military intelligence, 
and the mafia were all involved on several levels with the assassination. My question, and I guess we'll start with Larry Hancock, then we'll go to Bill, and then finally Alan. Larry, who organized? Who was the who was the uh, the organization that initiated the hit on President Kennedy? Lamar yeah. Waldron believes it was the mafia. What do you believe? I, I believe that the you would call it the incentive, the the initiative, the trigger for the whole thing, lay in discussions between Angleton and Harvey, uh, CIA. specifically at the CIA, between Angleton and Harvey, with Angleton telling Harvey what Oswald was doing with Castro. And, and as we discussed earlier, Harvey would have considered that absolute treason. I mean, there's just no doubt that he would, and Angleton would have as well. Bill Sipich, uh, what do you think? Well, one thing I learned uh, the other day was uh, that in early 1960, Oswald wrote a note saying that I would kill any American who uh, got in the way of Soviet aims. And I think uh, no matter why he wrote that, uh, shortly after his defection, I think... There's a letter to his brother Robert, right? Exactly. And and Angleton got a look at that letter. Angleton... uh, probably picked it up during his mail cover. And my point is simply that from that day on, Angleton was in the intelligence community's pocket. I personally, of, of the belief, uh, and it's just it may be just because I like a good story, I'm of the belief that Morales was at the center of it and that he, he took information he had from Angleton. So again, to the CIA. Blackmail, to blackmail the CIA and even Angleton. Okay. From being able to touch him and his cohorts. I've only got a minute left. I'm going to ask Alan. That Alan? was to make him in, untouchable. Alan, Look, who do you the, think? I, I have hardly anything that I could possibly add to what these guys, these guys are ultimate scholars. and they Your know fellow researchers? They, they know more than, they've forgotten more than I will ever know. I will refer, however, to something that Dr. John Newman wrote a long time ago in 2008, actually. And the idea, basically, is that authorized operations, authorized secret operations, at which or in which Oswald was being utilized, either knowingly, wittingly, or unwittingly, doesn't matter, um, may have had piggybacked upon them something that changed the course of world history. And that, I think, may be a model that we could go into if we're here for another 35 hours. But the idea that there were ongoing operations which involved Ann Goodpasture and 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 yeah, certainly yeah, yeah, David yeah. Phillips and people like that, but that may have been sort of taken over in a way, utilized, manipulated, um, piggybacked on top of those things, something which ultimately changed the course of world history. Okay. Let I me believe thank, that that's model that works. Let me thank Alan Dale from Washington for joining us, his fellow researcher Bill Simpich, all the way <laughs> from San Francisco, and, of course, uh, Larry Hancock from Oklahoma. Thank you all so much for joining us for this wonderful roundtable. Don't forget, there's the damn music, www.nightfrightshow.com. There you will find all the links that we mentioned tonight and especially a link to the upcoming conference, September, the end of September 24th to 26th, 2014, uh, in Washington, D.C. I've read